This is the forum on ministering to the chronically and terminally ill and their families. Some of the things we're going to be talking about this afternoon, what is a chronic illness, a terminal illness, what can I say to support and encourage such a person, do I hold back because I'm unsure about what to say, how can I help, and what are the Bible's guidelines. I'd like to first just define a few terms here so we know what we're talking about. A chronic illness is a long-term illness for which there may be a cure, may not be a cure. It's not necessarily intense. Uh, Brother Ted will speak some about uh, that in a little bit uh, here. We would differentiate a chronic illness from an acute one. An acute illness is generally short-term. The onset is typically quicker, and the, it get, you get over it faster. A terminal illness is one in which a person is expected to die. There may or may not be a cure for it. Typically there is not. And so barring some unforeseen miracle of the Lord or uh, something along those lines, the person is expected to die as a consequence of the terminal illness. Now a person may have that for a fairly short period of time. It could be a matter of weeks or months. It can even be a matter of years. But a terminal illness, being diagnosed with a terminal illness, is essentially a death sentence. At this point, um, I'd like to turn it over to Brother Ted, who's going to speak as a personal witness and participant in a chronic illness. From there, we're going to switch to Sister Diane Zoig who will talk about caregiving from a professional standpoint as a nurse. Sister Margaret Denzinger will be talking about the ministry of caregiving. And then lastly, I'll put some summary statements together uh, for things that uh, we can do. So Brother Ted, we'll turn it over to you. When someone close to you is critically ill, what happens? Uh, there are two parts of Helen's life that was critically ill. One was long-term, and that was her cancer. And she was diagnosed about four and a half years ago. And while going for treatment on that, she received a stroke. And that happened quick, because I was just outside the doctor's door. And all he was trying to do was insert something to hook an IV to. In here, into the neck vein, okay? And hit the artery. And all of a sudden, our world fell apart. Because all the things that were standard applied no more. So that took us. Uh, and since uh, we came back from Germany, uh, that took us about, well, close to three months. And as a result of that, we have been able to attend four camps. And you remember, some of you at least remember that first camp that we were able to attend. And we were able to be, be at, 
attend because the Lord made it possible for us to talk to you and to thank you for the prayers that you have offered on our behalf because we knew that God heard that and the encouragements that came along and we'll talk about that in, in, in a little while but different things happen at different times and, and when things happen suddenly you don't have time to think about other things than, other than you, you say what did I do wrong? How did we get here? Why did this happen to, to her? Why is she different now? Why did she have to change? And, and, and some of the things that, that come into your, your, your thoughts, and I'm, I'm talking to you about the things that, that happened in my life, was you know, how can I change her back? These are our questions that came in, what happened? How can we change again? When things happen slowly, like again, her other part, uh, which was a cancer, then, then you, you think about, how come we didn't see this coming? We tried to take care of it. Uh, we tried to live fairly healthy, health, wise we try to take care of things and yet what happened why is it that didn't work well it took us about four years to learn why those things didn't work but we'll go back to to we have to understand and that's one of the thing, biggest things that i had to learn is that helen didn't become critically ill she is critical. And to come with, to terms with that in my own life, I had to deal with situations that, that became very real and very personal between her and myself. I had to deal with the fact that, that she knew that this was a critical illness. And she was very frustrated with it because she didn't know how to deal with those things. She's never learned. You, you don't learn how to deal with those things. All of a sudden they happen and, and when you can't do the things that you always were able to, things become very frustrating. I'll give you a very simple answer, uh, simple uh, illustration of that. Um, she had a trach uh, because of the the stroke and everything else and she couldn't write she couldn't speak she couldn't so our communication was I did all the talking and I had to phrase everything in such a way that it was a, either a yes or no answer because there was no other thing that she could indicate and as she was recovering um, the speech therapist said that I should start to practice with her to mouth the words so that when they remove the trach, she can start talking, learn to talk again. And uh, she was very frustrated with me. She became angry. I couldn't understand why. Until the day that she, her body rejected the trach, it came out. Came out partially, 
the doctor did the rest of it, but it was on a Sunday of all days. And then, as soon as, she, as that happened, she started talking. And she was able to tell me why she was frustrated. Because in her mind, she knew how to talk. So why should she practice? You know, so these are things to try to find out and try to, to and you have to become that person when you're that close as, as, as we were. You know, not everybody has that opportunity. We had that opportunity. And to learn to deal with those frustrations and help them to deal with it is, 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 is uh, it's something that you actually have to learn and put yourself into their shoes. It's difficult because I don't have those same restrictions. So it was very difficult to do that. A supportive person must become what he or she was in time permits. Uh, and channel and learn to channel the energy that the person has, okay? In, into that, into, into the person that is ill so that they can deal with those frustrations so that they are able to cope and be able to recover some of those former attitudes because it's the attitude that changes. They become uh, self-centered, shorter tempered, negative, short-sighted, and very hopeless and helpless in many things. And what we have to learn as caregivers is how to channel those energies and try to change them so that they are better able to deal with those things. Time is the most important component of the support, as much as the fact that for the critically ill, time seem, may seem unimportant. This time spent with them is of utmost importance. Some have great reservations in spending too much time together. Uh, some in, in, in probably in my situation uh, would tend to go off in other directions, uh, trying to keep busy. I'm thankful that I was able to retire and really get to be part of her sickness. Uh, because in those things, I have become part of her life that I never was. Uh, the Lord is a worker in all these matters, but he needs willing tools in his hands. And I was willing to do that. Uh, the biggest thing to learn was to, to learn to trust that the Lord knows how, what to do and how to do it and what he wants to accomplish. He might want to change our attitude. He might want to give us new tools to work with. He might want to help us understand others and ourselves, how we need to grow. He might want to learn the inadequate inadequacy of learning, of on, leaning on things temporal, earthly, fleeting, mortal, and understand that this world is not my home. I'm just passing through. He might want to change our attitude from selfish to selfless. And that's one of the biggest things I had to learn. 
You see, when we went over to Germany, with her being sick, and I was well, I took my toys along with me, and I was going to accompany her. And while she was being taken care of, being healed, I was going to do my own thing until the Lord made the change. And he taught me that what it really means that when she's sick, I'm sick. When she's well, then I'm well. When she feels happy, I feel joyful. And those are things that I wasn't ready for until this happened. So that's why the, and I, and I, I really feel that way. That's why the double whammy happened. And that's why I was able to tell the doctor to his face, I knew he did it, but I was gonna tell him. And I told him, and I signed a piece of paper to him, tell him, I do not blame him at all for this. I have absolutely nothing that I hold against him. This happened the very next day when we took her into the hospital. Learn how to be able to channel her disappointments, frustrations, hurts, and anger by addressing these very feelings in yourself and finding some of those answers. Your answers might not be her answers. Do you have all the answers? No. Will you get all the answers? No. Is it important to have all the answers? No. God has them all. And he can help us what is important now. For today. Tomorrow will be another question or many more questions. And he'll help us. Some of the reasons and, I, and I, I got a little pamphlet that I, I've cherished for prior to all this happening. It, gives, it gave 10 reasons for God that a, a, such a God of love would allow such suffering. I'd like to mention some of them to you because I think it kind of puts things in perspective. Wise parents know the danger of overprotection. Freedom to choose is at the heart of being human. Therefore, a world without choice may mean a world without pain. And wrong choices without pain is the worst situation. No one is more dangerous than a liar, thief, or a killer who does not feel the harm he's doing to himself and to others. Another point, we hate pain, especially in those we love. Yet, without discomfort, the sick would not go to the doctor. Worn-out bodies would not get any rest. Criminals would not fear the law. Children would laugh at correction. Even the wiser, wisest among us tend to drift from God and good until arrested by the resultant pain of short-sighted choices. Another point, suffering often occurs in the, at the hand of others, but it has a way of revealing what is in our hearts. Capac capacities for love, mercy, anger, envy, and pride can lie dormant until awakened by circumstances. Strengths and weaknesses of the heart are found 
not when everything is going our way, but when flames of suffering and temptation test the metal of our character. Gold and silver are refined by fire. Coal needs time and pressure to become a diamond, and a human heart is developed in time and circumstances. If death is the end of everything, then suffering has no meaning. On the other hand, if the end of suffering brings us to the edge of eternity, then only those who suffer truly have their true perspective or the proper meaning of life. They have allowed themselves to be led to the Lord of eternity. Pain loosens our grip on this life. Each new pain makes this world less inviting and the next life more appealing. Pain paves the way for graceful departure. Suffering gives us opportunity to trust God. Take a look at Job. Take a look at our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. God suffers with us. Did you ever realize that pains we go through, he felt more than anyone else? He paid for us with his own son's life and blood. He was suspended between earth and heaven. God's comfort is greater than our suffering. He even reminded the Apostle Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. In times of crisis, we find each other. Just think, God is giving us opportunities to comfort, console, encourage, help each other. For in doing these, we do it unto him who died for us. We will not have to hear where we've come short in serving our Lord if we take those opportunities. God can turn our suffering around for good. Take Joseph, for example. Rejection, betrayal, enslavement, and wrongful imprisonment still gave him the courage and the faith to say, you meant evil, but God meant it for good. We must learn that we're not alone in those things we go through. All people experience it. But the question is, how will we deal with them? And with what attitude? And with whose help? That's what's going to determine the outcome. In order for others to be able to help us, we must become vulnerable. That is to say, we must open up to others that they may be able to see our need. It is very difficult to help someone whose need we do not know or who may, who may not want us to help or encourage them. What are the things we may, may or should say to encourage support? And this is something that so often we have a tendency in, in, in praying for and, and consoling people, uh, especially gravy ale. Uh, we trust that, that, that uh, the Lord will heal you. Uh, we hope to, to see you back in the same position where you were and all those things. And We, we, have, we personally had, had great difficulty with that because what we, and, and the ones that mostly encouraged us were things like, God grant you the strength to be faithful. Find the contentment in the current situation. Find purpose in what's happening. Find an answer, what's God, God's will in all this. It, is, it was profitable and uplifting without giving false hope. Especially for those that are critically ill, gravely ill. We can't. 
we can't. And I'll give you a very simple example of that. Uh, Helen became the hero of Brother John Moa because she, after having a stroke, was able to walk again. And it took him a long time to deal with the fact that he might not because he had this hope. Even though we didn't convey this, but the fact that this happened in her life, it conveyed that, and he took it as a false hope. We can't give, especially those that are critically ill, we can't give them false hope because what happens is a bigger letdown happens when that doesn't happen. Uh, it's very easy to raise false hopes in the critical ill, such as, I feel that you will be well soon. Surely the Lord will make you well soon. The Lord helped me to recover, so he'll help you too. It's very easy to convey this even without words. And we must be careful because we don't know what's God's purpose in all this. So it's not for us to decide which way that God's going to lead this whole process. It's up to God. The modes of communication can be through telephone calls, emails, uh, cards, personal visits. That depends on a lot of times on physical dimension uh, or closeness. Uh, but I tell you, all of it, all of it helps. All of it encourages, if it encourages us to place our confidence, our trust in God and his purposes in our lives. I've gone way over that. We'll now switch to uh, Sister Diane Zoig to talk about uh, critical care uh, in the hospital as a nurse. Um, for the past 10 years, I've been a pediatric oncology nurse, kids with cancer, and um, I don't only deal with the kids, I deal with obviously their families. Yeah, try to speak up. Okay, sorry. <laughs> um, in college, I learned about the five phases of dealing with illness, and it's something that I've seen in the past 10 years. There's denial, there's anger, bargaining, depression, and then finally acceptance. Um, denial is right when you come in, the parents have seen something wrong with their kids, they take them to the pediatrician, the pediatrician sends them to the hospital for some tests, your kid has cancer. Parents are what? He was just playing, he was just swimming, no, your kid has cancer. That, my job as a nurse then, because the doctor tells them they have cancer, and then the nurse takes over. Um, <laughs> It's just basically answering questions. There's, it's just very technical, it's very medical. This is what this means, this is what chemo is, this is what a transplant is, this is what your kid will have, he'll have. Just very technical. And it's the denial, it's learning what's going on. Then comes the anger, very angry. Parents are upset with God, they're upset with themselves. What did I do wrong? And um, this is where I've learned Listening is so important. I've tried, this is when I've tried to say, witness to people or to talk about God. It doesn't work when they're in the anger phase. You just need to listen, hold their hands, cry with them. Um, example, a little boy, Matthew, two years old. Cancer, he had a tumor growing on the lower base of his spine. He went through chemo, and we thought he was in relapse. He went home for a short time, came back in terrible pain, 
It was a Thursday afternoon, they did CAT scans, and the doctors found out that the tumor had grown really big, and it was inoperable because the way it was wrapped around the spine, and basically, he was gonna die. But it was Thursday evening, and it was a Memorial Day weekend, so they wanted to wait till Tuesday to tell the parents. Well, I was in work that night, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, three nights in a row, and Matthew never stopped crying. He was in so much pain, and it was awful. And you could just hear him crying from whatever part of the hospital you, or floor you were on. Grandma and Dad were with him. They were giving Mom a break, because Mom had other kids. And as nurses, it's awful, because you're giving pain medication and doing everything you can, but this kid keeps crying. Grandma comes out, very angry, very angry at God, I tried to say something that might comfort her, and it just blew up in my face. She's angry, and I just realized God is telling me I need to just listen. I held her hand. I cried with her. Oh, we cried a lot. Um, she hugged me, but she was just very angry at this moment. The next night she came back. I came back to work, and she just hugged me and said, thank you for listening to me. And then she was... She went through the bargaining depression acceptance like within the day, and she was in the acceptance phase. She's like, the doctors didn't tell us he's dying, but I know he is. I went home Monday morning, and I came back to work a few days later, and he died Tuesday morning. But you just need to listen. Listening is a big part of helping parents through things. Bargaining phase is when they bargain with God. God, if you heal my son, I'll do this, do that, and then that, again, is a good time to witness, and you've got to know your Bible verses. You, you, you just got to know your Bible, because you never know what verse is going to come in when. You just, it, each situation is different. And um, depression. Depression is very hard to handle when parents are just in the depression phase. I never have a depression in kids. Kids are amazing. You can do whatever you want to them. You can do awful things, treatments, and, but they bounce back. They smile at you five minutes later. They're willing to hug you. So it's mostly the parents go through a depression. And um, as a caregiver, I, I'm there for the parent, but I'm the patient advocate. I have to be there for the patient most of all. And um, example is a five-year-old who was dying. Um, doctors had, or were, and nurses, we were shocked. She was just hanging on, hanging on. Week after week, she's just not dying. She's turning blue from lack of oxygen. Her body was already in the rigor mortis stage after people die. Her joints, her knees, everything was stiff from no oxygen. And it was heartbreaking to go in and watch this child because she's pretty much almost dead. Her breathing was just barely there. And you had to get so close to her to hear her talk. And she's just hanging on and hanging on. And mom is just crying all the time, weeping, and just totally depressed. And um, one afternoon, I was taking care of the nurse. And mom and dad were just out in the hallway because they thought um, she was sleeping. And I went in to do my nursing care. And she called me, Diane. And I, you know, I'm getting real close to her. And I'm like, what's wrong? And she's like, I'm so tired. And I said, just go to sleep, just rest, it's okay. And she's like, no, I'm ready to go to heaven. And I said, well, it's okay, you can go to heaven. She's like, no, mommy will be too sad. Mommy, I don't want mommy to be sad at me. I said, do you want me to talk to mommy? And she's like, please do. And okay, how do you tell a mother to let her daughter die? 
I couldn't do that. I'm a mother now. Very awful, very hard. But this is my patient, not the mother. So, you know, in my heart, every day I pray before I go to work, and I'm like, God gives me the strength to handle what I can't, and this is what I can't handle, so God is giving me strength. I go out into the hallway, and I look at Mom, and I said, your daughter just asked me to tell you she's ready to go to heaven, and she is afraid that you will be mad at her. You need to go in there, be strong for your daughter, and tell her it's okay to die. She needs to hear that from you. She can't see tears. And mom is like, how can you tell me to let my daughter go? And I'm like, because she's going to heaven. She wants to go to heaven. She's ready to go. And these were Christian families. So we, you know, we prayed in the hallway, and mom and dad went in, prayed with their daughter. They told her her favorite Bible verse. And mom's like, it's okay. You can go to heaven if that's what you want. I'm okay. I won't be sad. And daughter died in her arms, took her last breath right then. And um, so sometimes it's very hard, but you have to do what the patient wants and be strong. Um, and then sometimes, you know, these patients are in the hospital for a very long time sometime. And every time I go into work, I take care of the same patient. So you get to know the families very well. And it's very hard to deal with when I have to know that my job as a caregiver is done because I've also learned that um, after families go th like lose a dying one, my job is done. Sometimes my presence I've learned can be more harm than good, and you have to be accepting of that too and realize, okay, maybe I'm too close to this family, I have to step back. An example of that is um, I had a patient for a year and a half. He was um, I came back to work after maternity leave from having my son Brian. And my very first patient was one that was admitted that day, named Brian, one month old, same as my Brian. And he had a very good prognosis, and I took it as a sign, you know, God is giving me, because I was very upset to go back to work, leaving my son, and here I'm taking care of a Brian. And I'm like, thank you, God. And um, he had a very good prognosis. He was going to have a transplant and get out. All the kids that had his certain diagnosis did well. And... Um, so mom was all happy, and we were all, this is my Brian away from home. And he had his transplant, he was doing good, then he got an infection. And then he had to stay longer, and I saw him get his first tooth, we saw him take his first steps, and we compared notes with our Brian's, and then I saw this boy getting infection after infection, his body slowly shutting down from the transplant, just rejecting it. I saw him go from a very happy, friendly baby to one that you could just poke with needles, IV needles, and he would never even cry, just lay there. And um, through all this, Mom and I, Evelyn, had become very close. You know, we shared everything, because you're with the parents, we witnessed, I prayed with her, I did, you know, our sons were the same age. And then came the point, I was there the day her Brian died. Um, a year and a half, he never left the hospital. and. Um, I was there, and she took her hands on my face and just said, you have your Brian, and I don't have mine. And I just said, Evelyn, do you need me to go? Am I not helping you right now? And she's like, I need you to go. And I, my job as the caregiver was done. I took care of her son, and as a nurse, I would love to have been there to help her through this. And as a Christian, I would love to have helped her with this witness to her, but I knew I needed to go. And I prayed for her, you know, and three months later when she was 
at the acceptance phase, she called me back and we got in touch and we shared again. But you gotta know, sometimes you do more harm than good and you just need to leave them in God's care and pray for them. But in all my years as a nurse, um, it's never, at first I think some, I thought, well maybe they don't wanna talk about cancer or this and that, but you know, you really need to listen, let people talk. People like to talk about what they're going through. They are very receptive. Um, God come, becomes very real when they're dealing with death and dying. All of a sudden is, where's my son going? Or is my daughter going to heaven? What does God mean? Religion was just something they did, but when they actually have to deal with it, it's a great opportunity to witness. Don't be afraid to pray with them. It's so encouraging. I've, um, I've honestly never found someone that didn't want me to pray for their kids, or they just found it very encouraging. The Bible has such encouraging verses. Don't be afraid to tell them a verse here and there that it's very receptive. And um, I guess the main reason I feel that God has put me in this job is um, to be a Christian example. I had a patient who was 15, Jessica. I had never taken care of her before, and she was suffocating. She had a tumor that was just growing right here on her, um, in her throat. And she was dying, and um, she knew it. She was just, she knew that if she fell asleep or would relax and close her eyes, that she was not going to wake up. She was going to die. So she was beside herself, fighting, fighting, fighting. I've never seen someone fight so much and gasping. She could hardly breathe. And the doctor and I never left her bedside all night long. Her parents were there. And I was giving drug upon drug to just sedate her. Nothing was working. And finally, she just jumped out of bed, or up in bed, and just screamed, I'm not ready to go. And as parents and the nurse, it was awful. But I just feel that God has put me there, and, and as a witness and as a Christian, I hope that nobody's not ready to go to heaven because of my lack of doing God's will. Thank God that there are people who can bear or help the rest of us bear burdens like this with their caregiving services and to make are to make things easier. That's probably the wrong word because it's not easy, but nevertheless it has to be done and, and we got some very real insight into that process from Diane. And um, I don't know how you do it day in and day out, but the Lord undoubtedly gives you strength to do that. We'd like to switch gears now and have Sister Margaret tell us about ministry to the chronically ill, Sister Margaret was uh, needed support while in a hospital and as well at home that we were involved with over probably a three or four month uh, time period which ended up in a leg amputation for that person and so we were there uh, on an ongoing basis. Another person I've never met, I've only talked to on the phone and this was quite uh, a coincident coincidental thing yet and I'm still wondering in my mind why the Lord allowed this to come into my life, I really don't know, but um, it's a person who apparently was hitchhiking one day and was picked up by someone from our church and um, was a, just a young teenager in high school and was given the phone number of the church and said, if you're ever in trouble, please call. Well, lo and behold, one Sunday he did call and uh, the, one of the brothers picked up the phone and said, he's calling to talk to some woman, would you like to take the phone? Well, I did, and 
<laughs> little did I know what it was going to lead into. So two years later, uh, I am still on the phone with him on a regular basis. Like I said, I've never met him, but he was involved in a uh, abuse case in a foster home, a sexual abuse case. And um, I was able to, first of all, uh, lead him and guide him to go to his counselor at school and through that go to a psychologist. And he goes on a regular basis and every time that he's had his, his visit with his doctor, he calls me up and says, and, and kind of vents and lets me know what progress he's making and so on. It is pretty graphic at times and something that I've never experienced in my life before, but I feel that I'm there for a reason and, and just now, before we came again, he phoned a couple of times and I was able to share with him in his progress that he's making and whenever I get a chance, I can witness to him and tell him what I feel is, is what the Bible indicates in, in, in regard for him. He hasn't been too receptive in that area yet, but the Lord only knows where it will lead. Anyway, I'm going to start talking about how we're involved in, in, in all of this. And it's not only myself, it's our family because it does involve the family. And we're involved, like I say, on a daily and a weekly um, basis through the phone. And sometimes these people who are unstable can call as many times as five times a day. One of them calls and says, am I going to die? And, and then a few hours later, or maybe just a short time later, am I going to die? Am I going to be okay? And just needs that reassurance. And sometimes you get a little desperate after the fifth phone call because what are you going to say and what are you going to do? But you, you, you try to spend uh, you know, the time with them when they need it. And we also try to meet their physical needs and wants if, 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 if possible. Um, visit them if they need encouragement. Be a friend that they desperately need. We have one that is a kind of a, a distant relative of ours who has no one, absolutely no one, and everyone that she's had close to her has gone. And, and so she often calls me and says, you're the only one that I can talk to. I have no one else to talk to. So we along the way invested in one of those headset phones that I can put on because I find that my, my time on the phone becomes quite lengthy at times. And one of them who is unstable, just doesn't give up when she needs help and she will continually and continually and continually uh, talk and won't let you get off the phone and I found it very difficult when I was still working because of course I had my homework assignments that needed to be done for school the next day and she often knew I was up late and knew that everybody else was in bed so would call me and I'd be trying to mark papers while I'm telling her and I'm encouraging her or whatever and sometimes she's you're not giving me any good encouragement today and one day I got so desperate I said you know what you want blood from a stone <laughs> because I was just so drained at that point and so it, it can be a real draining process and you have to learn to cope with, with uh, the demands that, they, that are being put on you and, and even the, the, the involvement, like I said, is not only you. Our family's got to the point where we take turns because we can't often handle the phone all, all the time. And so even our boys now can do it. And, and they don't mind talking to them. So it's just a voice at the end of the phone. It's someone that they need to, to, to talk to. And so they'll relieve. Or, or Eckhart often will take over. But sometimes they want a specific person. And, and then you're the one. So you need to you need to take time uh, to communicate with what whenever they call, and you've got to change your plans sometimes to accommodate their needs. I have many times left my food on the stove or made it and had it ready for the for them and just had to take off. And even when the boys were younger, had to leave them and go. And this and it just shows you sometimes the instability of these people or the instability. You know, it's a matter of life and death, death situation to them. So you go, and, and we're in a big city. You go clear across the city. It maybe took you 45 minutes to get there. And when I finally got there. Here, this person had three or four other people on the phone, and they were all there at the same time. 
Well, then you get really upset because you think, I left a situation at home in maybe dire straits because your children were too young to be left on their own, but you felt if you didn't go, what if something should happen? So sometimes you really have to weigh things out and, and um, you, have to, you have to listen and, and kind of encourage them and sometimes just admit that this is only what you can do for the time being because they really can pull you down and, and drain you as well. And you've had, oftentimes uh, you have to answer their spiritual questions as well. And I've found through the years that dealing with, with unstable people like this, the spiritual realm of their life is the hardest thing for them to deal with at that point. And sometimes they can't even deal with it. And, and you've got to maybe even steer them away from those kinds of things that they're talking about. Um, what kind of effect does this have on, on myself as a person or my family? Well, sometimes you become closer than family with the person that you're dealing with. Um, or, be, sorry, what I meant to say is you become closer than their family because they can't often deal with their own family. They have a falling out. And so they really rely on you as their source. Uh, sometimes you become their hate object. That's happened to me so many times. I was accused of because I hung my coat up on the hanger the wrong way, that I did it specifically to, to just get to that person. And so sometimes, no matter what you do, it's never right. You can't do it right. And so sometimes you just have to avoid contact with them, or, or they'll assume you've done something to spite them. And I, I could write a book on all the things that, that I've been accused of and the things that have happened to me over those years. But one thing is that the Lord helps me to forget those things. They may remember them and bring them up to me, but I've long forgotten them. And they always, usually when they get those moments of when they feel some guilt, they'll come back to ask forgiveness. And they'll remember all those things, but I'll have to say to them, you know what, I've long forgotten and I've long forgiven. And I'm thankful that the Lord has given me that kind of a heart. Um, you have to be careful that your family doesn't resent the amount of time spent with those people. And I'm guilty of that one because sometimes you know your family loves you, you know you love your family, but sometimes you take them for granted and you spend more time with that person who you think really needs you and can't get along without you. But they'll always find another person. I found that out too over the years. If you're not available, they've got the whole church list and they usually go through the whole directory if they don't get you when they need you. So some things that I've learned and gained from these uh, involvements, to be very thankful for my own health. Oh, I, I thank God so many times that I'm, I have a sound mind and that I, I can, I'm able to cope with these things. You learn to be empathetic and sympathetic. And uh, you learn to take any accusations from them lightly. You say a prayer before beginning conversation with them so that you'll have the right words um, to, 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 to tell them. And, and often I have marveled after I've hung up the phone and I thought, how did those things come into my mind? It certainly wasn't for me because I would have never have thought to say that, and yet that person will thank the Lord in you, thank the Lord in you for having given me the right words. Well, it didn't come from me, and I have to acknowledge that. And it's difficult not to be drained of the energy by them. So, and, and your family has to come first at times, and you have to remember that. And the biggest thing is don't feel guilty when you can't fulfill their requests. And that's one that I had to learn over the years because that was a big one with me and that my own spiritual needs need to be met before I can help others. And this is the other one that I've had to learn over the years, is to, to remember to thank God for the insights that he gave you in order to help them, because it certainly is only through him. And some suggestions that I might have for those of you who are involved with some of these types of people is um, you, you shouldn't be in control of the time and amount of effort that you will, you should be in control, sorry, of the, of the, the amount of time and effort that you'll spend don't let guilt be your motivator, because this could lead to resentment. 
on that person. Your involvement will eventually bring about a dependency on you. Can you handle it? Because they will become dependent on you. You will not always be able to make, meet all of their needs emotionally, physically, or spiritually. Make sure that you have the support of your family when you become involved with someone. Whatever you do, do it heartily as unto the Lord, and you'll receive the blessing. And that's one thing I've learned, too. Be careful not to get angry, because just as she was going through those, some of those stages and symptoms, these things will surface in you, too. You become angry that that person is so demanding of you and wants all your time. And then you start to take it out on that person. And have a plan to take time out for yourself when you're dealing with someone on a long term. We've got to the point now where we, do, we, we just leave the house so that we don't have to answer the phone sometimes just to get away. And you have to be very careful that they don't even... We had a situation where they were calling in the middle of the night, even at 2 or 3 in the morning. And the guilt can get you. And, and it was just happened before this person became a paraplegic that she did call. And, I, and she knows that I'm, a, I'm a, up very late at night. And I, I thought, I have to teach her a lesson not to call in the middle of the night. And I didn't answer the phone. Well, then, of course, when this happened a few days later, the guilt really set in. And, and you can't let it. You have to just let it go and say, well, I did what I could for that person when I could, and the Lord knows how much you can handle. It's okay. Thank you, Sister Margaret. Um, we're also going to uh, talk a bit about helping ways that are more typical for uh, people that we could all get involved in at some level. Uh, Sister Margaret's uh, examples are fairly difficult uh, cases to deal with, I would say. They're the kinds that uh, people can make a living off of if you get a, a number of them who will come to you for a period of time. Um, and uh, their possibilities of getting better are typically very slim in some cases. Um, because of the difficulties they have to deal with and the, the problems that they have. And uh, that's a great deal of, a great deal of uh, energy and time that has to be spent in that sort of situation. What about for the rest of us uh, who don't perhaps even care to get quite that involved with people, calling us in the middle of the night, spending hours on the phone, going across town to help and finding out that three other people also got the same message and are there too, and you feel used and taken advantage of and so on. Uh, but what about the more, the, the simpler situation where you simply don't know what to say in a situation? How do you handle that? Um, in a way, if the examples that Margaret gave, if she were not talking to this person, who would be? Would anybody be talking to them? chances are much of what they are doing, they would be talking with themselves and talking to themselves. And when you're in a difficult situation, you're not in a good position to give yourself advice. It's not very rational. It's probably not going to be even very spiritual. Uh, minds are mixed up. And even if it is a physical illness and not a mental kind of situation, a person can be so distraught over the physical circumstances, the physical illness that uh, they cannot think straight. So if, if we don't talk with them, they're likely to be talking to themselves, and the information they give themselves is not going to be very helpful. We will be more likely to reach out to help somebody if we have some idea of what we should say. And helping a hurting person is a scary thing to do. You don't know how they're going to respond. 
whether it's in the hospital in a caregiving situation, whether it's a neighbor next door, whether it is somebody in church who's going through uh, difficulties. Uh, we hope that whatever we say or we do is the right thing, that we don't hurt and make things worse by what we say or what we do. One of the things that we have to realize is that we can't fix the individual's situation. That is, we can't fix the chronic illness, the terminal illness, the mental problems. We cannot do that. God can do it if he so chooses. But it's not our responsibility to fix things. Now, if we could, we'd love to do that. If we had a child who we can fix his boo-boo by putting a Band-Aid on it and things are well and on their way they go. And we're used to fixing things. Car breaks down, you get it fixed. A handyman in the house, we're used to fixing things and taking charge and making it work. And dealing with these kinds of problems, there's nothing that we can do to make it work. There's nothing we can do to fix it. But what we can do is help the person. We can help by washing dishes. We can mow a lawn for somebody. We can take the kids to the park. We can take them to their piano lessons. We can go to the cemetery with them. There are things that can be done that would be of genuine help to the individual, even though we cannot fix the situation or the grief that they may be experiencing. Your friend may not realize that you're needed, at, le at least at this particular point in time. And in fact, in Brother Ted's case, I thought this came out most directly, that what Sister Helen had lost, he also lost. He experienced that loss too. And when somebody close to you is experiencing these things, you are also losing those same kinds of things. You're losing a spouse who at one time was vibrant and, and so on and so forth, and now you are, in, in a sense, in the same situation. They are losing you. You are losing them. Both are dealing with a loss. She's dealing with a loss in physical capacity. He's dealing with a loss associated with a wife with a chronic condition. Um, the relationship has changed. Whereas in a household it might be some evenness of responsibility. He goes to work, she takes care of the house, they both go to work, they share household responsibilities or what have you. But that relationship is no longer equal like it had been in the past. Or it's no longer as unequal as it had been in the past. Um, because now the caregiver is literally giving and the other person is receiving. And some people find it hard to give and some people find it very difficult also to receive. So we are the giver. The friend, the husband, the wife is the taker and that relationship is off balance because of it. The sharing is not equal. The give and take of the past has vanished. What's important as, uh, is to you, not that you are important to your friend, um, the really important thing is that this person's experiences, this person's concerns are really foremost in your life at this time. So it's no longer going to Europe and taking the toys with you and thinking you're going to do what you're going to do while she's going into treatment. This problem is also your problem and everything else that you were doing or plan to do, if it's on hold for her, it's on hold for him also. People oftentimes say things that will hurt. 
people are not thinking straight. They are terribly moved by this information that this illness is chronic or I'm going to have to live with this or it'll get worse over a period of time or the worst case scenario, I am going to die from this. They are deeply hurt by that and they're likely to say things that will also hurt. And it takes a mighty, magnanimous, generous, loving individual to keep those thoughts to themselves. I mean, why me and why not her? Why me and why not him? Look how I've lived my life and look how she lives hers. Um, but those things we can't always, we can't answer. Um, how can God let this happen is a question that often comes up. What do you say to a person like that? Quoting Bible verses, giving them a book, things like that at this time are unlikely to be helpful. They're unlikely to be heard. They're unlikely to be read. They're unlikely to be understood. It's better to say, yes, what's happening to you doesn't make sense, does it? Or, I wish I had some answers for you. Or, what do you think is the message in all of this? Why do you think God is letting this happen? What about visiting the individual? Uh, that was mentioned uh, by a couple of our presenters. And not everybody um, benefits from visits. Some people prefer to spend their time uh, solely with their family. And I believe it's the caregiver's responsibility or the friend's responsibility to understand that, that different people handle this kind of a situation differently. And you might show up at the front door only not to feel very welcomed. And though you may listen to the words that are said, the, the nonverbal behavior may suggest your presence is probably not wanted. And saying something like, would it be better for me to give you some space and leave you alone at this time? Or would you like me to come back at another time when it's more convenient? And you give them the choice then of your presence or your absence. And if you're not needed, you can say something like, I'll check back with you at another time to see what I can do to assist you. It lets them know that you will not be offended if you're not wanted there. And there will be times in dealing with chronically ill people, with terminally ill people, that our presence is not wanted. We are not mind readers. I think that came up in another forum. But that's also true in this situation. If we don't ask, we will not know. And if we push ourselves onto a person because we think we have to help, we may be making a situation much worse. Uh, what's the best support that we can give a person? It's the last point that's made on the um, projector there. Normalize the friend's feelings. Agree with what they are feeling. I can understand how you are angry. I can understand how it doesn't seem fair. I can understand, I don't know why God is doing this to you. I wish I knew I would tell you. But as Brother Ted said, we will not have all the answers. The Lord knows but we may never know those. And you know, quite frankly, we may not even know them in the world to come. Because at that point, it'll be irrelevant. Biblical advice. Rely on whose understanding. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart. Lean not into thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy paths. We're all used to this in terms of dealing with a variety of situations. Have you ever heard these verses in terms of relying on the Lord's understanding when it comes to dealing with people who've got some very serious illnesses?
talk thoughtfully. The heart of the righteous studieth to answer, but the mouth of the wicked poureth out evil things. See thou a man that is hasty in his words, there is more hope of a fool than of him. I recall very vividly a brother who came to me during Violet's funeral and at the funeral home, and he started rattling off a bunch of things. It was almost like it was a prepared speech. Of course, I'd never heard it before. I was never in this situation. I suppose nobody else who wasn't in that situation had heard it before either. But it was a prattling of some... I don't remember what it was about, but what impressed me was the fact that it had nothing to do with me as an individual, nothing to do with my wife as a person, but it was, it was saying all the right things to in what to me was a, a meaningless kind of situation. And I would have much preferred something to the, ex, ex, to the likes of, uh, Brother David, I, I don't understand what you're going through and I'm, I'm sorry. Simple, straightforward, few words with heartfelt thought behind it. Talk wisely. Ointment and perfume rejoice the heart. So doth the sweetness of a man's friend. By hearty counsel, good counsel, talk wisely. If a person isn't making sense, you don't have to agree with the nonsense but you can say, I can understand how you, or tell me more about why you see it that way. Talk briefly, listen intently, and again, uh, Proverbs is very helpful here in the multitude of words. There wanteth not sin, but he that refraineth his lips is wise. He that is void of wisdom despises his neighbor, but a man of understanding holdeth his peace. Proverbs 11.12. The previous was Proverbs 10.19. He that hath knowledge spareth his words, and a man of understanding is of an excellent spirit. Proverbs 17, 27, and 28. Talk briefly, listen intently. And not just to the words that are being said, but the tone of voice, the body, posture. Does it look like you're not wanted in this situation? And if so, respond to it. What if you're shocked by what the person says? And counselors will oftentimes even hear these sorts of things. Say a prayer to yourself. Wait in silence. Bide your time. Silence is a great thing. Most of us get uncomfortable anytime there's like more than 10 seconds of silence. But you know when Job's friends appeared, you know how long they sat together before one of them spoke? It was a week. It was a week before anybody said anything. They were there sitting with sackcloth, sackcloth and ashes, sitting beside Job, and there is no conversation for the first week. Counselors, Christian counselors, will oftentimes say a prayer to themselves, Lord, what do I say now? How do I handle this? Because you never know what a person's going to tell you, where it's going to come from, and what you should say next. There's no script in these things. And you want to help and not hurt. Another thing you can say if you're shocked by something that somebody says is, say, I'm going to need a few minutes to, to digest this. I will need some time to understand the implications of what you're talking about. Or, tell me more, why do you feel that way? Not in a judgmental kind of fashion, but just, I'd like to know more about it. Timing is important. A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold and pictures of silver, Proverbs 25, 11. There's a time to talk, there's a time to be quiet. Confidentiality is very critical. You don't, people don't share with you if you're going to share it all over. 
it has to be kept to oneself. Convey understanding, identify with the hurt, be less concerned about cheering the person up. Oh, you'll be better in no time. <laughs> no, they won't. Barring the Lord's intervention, they will not be better in no time. Do you understand that a hospice is a place you come to die? You do not return home from here. And I had to explain that to somebody. It, we need to be sensitive to individuals and the situations they're in. Convey understanding. Identify with the hurt. Don't just try to cheer up and say you'll be better and you'll get to go home. It doesn't work that way. What about writing to a friend? What about putting thoughts in writing? Actually, it may help more than the spoken word. For one thing, you get to think about what you're going to say more carefully. <laughs> and that's an advantage for most of us because some of us are either not very fast at it or we're too quick at it and we'll say things that may hurt. A letter, a card, a note can be saved and reread. Sometimes it's very difficult to determine what to write. What am I going to write? And what you want to do is basically put your compassion into words. Put your caring into words. And one of the ways of doing that, if you're not sure what to say, go out and buy some cards and read what the cards say. And then use that to stimulate your thinking and then write out your note. Don't just send a card and it's got a signature at the end of it. I mean, that's probably better than nothing but not much greater than nothing. It indicates that you thought about it and you went to the effort to buy a card and so on. But it's much better to, in your own hand, don't write it on the computer, don't type it out, do it in your own handwriting and make it clear that you understand something about what this individual is going through. Um, so that's one way of handling that sort of situation. Write down what you want to pray about. You want to pray with your friend or uh, pray individually. Uh, when you're not with the person who is hurting. Prayer brings us into the presence of God. Prayer can remind us of the promises of God. You know, ask, seek, knock. I just picked one out of Matthew 7, 7. There are many others where God's promises say that he listens to the prayers of righteous individuals. Types of prayer, prayers of encouragement, that was mentioned. Transferring hope, courage, and belief in them encouraging individuals, praying with them. Even over the phone can be a very powerful source of inspiration to them. Prayer of restoration. Individual feels like a failure. They're exhausted. And you ask God to feel them, to fill them with hope, to help them feel secure in his everlasting arms, that he would restore some strength that they can continue. A prayer of affirmation. Focus on something the friend cannot see in themselves. Lord, I'm thankful that John is able to make good decisions this week. We praise you for the goodness that you have put in there. A prayer of blessing, invoking God's gracious power and purpose in this individual's life. I would pray that God would bless you in the time that you have left, that it may serve his purpose as well and that your life may be enriched in what you need to deal with. And a prayer of intercession. Stand between your friend and God. They may not be able to pray for themselves. I knew that time came in the situation that I dealt with, and I tried to intercede, saying what I thought 
I would once said for me, if I were in that situation where I could no longer pray, I would want to be, I would want to hear someone intercede for me, even though I may not be able to express that. So intercede for them in our prayers. Don't withdraw. Don't compare, evaluate, judge. Well, if I were in that situation, or he should do this, or she shouldn't feel that way, don't look for self-sympathy. Um, to you know, think that one is giving encouragement to somebody when, in fact, what is happening is you take more time to tell them about your own problems. Or don't pity the friend. Don't be condescending. Treat them like a child, because they'll know it. They will pick that up. Accept how the person is responding. Listen to them with support and caring. And maintain contact and help them. The help is an interesting thing. Well, let me know if you need some help. Nobody ever calls you and says you need some help. I didn't call people, and if I did, I called my closest relatives. I would call a brother or a sister or a sister-in-law. But say, I'm going to help you and make yourself available and do it and follow through. There are many different things that could be said beyond what we've already talked about. Uh, we've done enough talking, and I certainly have uh, done more than my share. Uh, should have mentioned that if there are any questions or comments here at the end, we will take the extra time to do that. Don't want to cut it off prematurely and at the same time don't want to prolong it anymore. I would challenge you, though, to take the assignment of providing some encouragement to an individual. And don't just do it during the sickness of their child or while their wife is ill or in the first few weeks after the funeral or even the first month, but do it over a period of time. Mark your calendar two years ahead on a quarterly basis and say, I need to send her a card. I need to remember because it's going to be with her every single day of her life. Brian's mother is going to remember Brian every day of his life and she'll know it's his birthday and she'll know when she sees the other kids in the Christmas program at church or elsewhere Brian would be here. And it's reassuring and encouraging and supportive of her to know that others realize those things too. Okay, I could talk more, I will not. That's a good question. Does the person know that they are terminally ill? Yes, then I would think that you would be withdrawing and avoiding them by not mentioning that or dealing with the issue. You need to recognize that and help them, uh, help them affirm what it is that they have actually heard that you are aware of this. So I would in some very polite way make reference to that. I didn't make reference to a book. Margaret has a copy there. But this is an excellent book that was just published this year um, by H. Norman Wright, Helping Those Who Hurt. Helping Those Who Hurt. And it's got sample letters. And some I, one chapter, I was in tears reading this. Because this man lost a son at, I think he was 21 years old, a son who had the mind of an 18-month-old. And he lost his son. And he's a psychologist by training, counselor. And some very moving things. And there are Bible verses that are referenced that can be used. 
there are ways of dealing with all kinds of different situations and samples of letters and things. Now, I would not just wholesale take something out of here, but I would let it stimulate my thinking to say, okay, I can say that this way and put it in my own words. Something like that might be very helpful. Others of you? Yeah, it's not over once the funeral is over. In some ways, it's just starting. It is just starting. And there isn't.